0: Hello, and welcome to the WPAOG podcast. This episode features an interview between Dr. Thomas Sherlock, political science professor at the United States Military Academy, and Ambassador William B. Taylor, Vice President, Russia and Europe at the US Institute of Peace. Dr. Thomas Sherlock received his doctorate in political science from Columbia University and teaches courses on many subjects, including comparative politics, democracy, and the Politics of the Post-Soviet Region. He has written and contributed to many books and publications, providing insight and expertise on Russia, and frequently conducts field research in the post-Soviet space. Ambassador William B. Taylor is Vice President Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He has served as the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, oversaw U.S. assistance, and support during the Arab Spring helped the U.S. government facilitate relationships and reconstruction in parts of the Middle East, coordinated U.S. assistance to the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and worked on the staff of Senator Bill Bradley. Ambassador Taylor is a 1969 graduate of West Point and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He also served as an infantry platoon leader and combat company commander in the U.S. Army in Vietnam and Germany. In this episode of the WPAOG Broadcast Network, Dr. Sherlock and Ambassador Taylor provide perspective and insight on the current war being waged on Ukraine by Russia. The ambassador sheds light on the history of the region, its relationship with Russia, its rapid democratization, and shares his experiences with President Vladimir Zelensky. He talks about how the United States is supporting the Ukrainian people from both sides of the political aisle. As well, he details what the conflict means for the country's people, how it will affect the U.S. and NATO, and what you can do to help support Ukraine as the country fights for its freedom. Now, please enjoy this interview between Dr. Thomas Sherlock and Ambassador William B. Taylor.
1: Greetings. Uh, I am... Tom Sherlock, a professor of political science in the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. I am pleased and privileged for the opportunity to speak today with Ambassador William Taylor, whose knowledge and insights on Ukraine are truly unparalleled. Ambassador Taylor, welcome.
2: Dr. Sherlock, it's, a, it's an honor to be here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Okay, well, let's just
1: dive right in. And I'd like to begin by asking you to discuss, you know, the current tragedy in Ukraine from the perspective of Ukrainians and Ukrainian national interests, and not just from the perspective of Ukrainian elites, but also everyday Ukrainians. In other words, you know, what is the
2: Ukrainian story in this conflict? I'm very glad you asked, because too often, Um, when we have these conversations, we look at the Russians and we look at the aggression and we look at what the Russians are trying to do and why they're trying to do it. You've asked the important question and that is, from the Ukrainian standpoint, what is this about? And you asked the right thing. It's about from kind of Ukraine as a whole, as a nation, as a people, but also individuals. And and that's equally important. Ukraine is is a very interesting country. It turns out it's an old civilization. It goes back like to the ninth and tenth centuries, and it is proud of that history. It's Ukraine is proud of the history of the people that that were in Kievan Rus and then all the way through up up until today. Ukraine has been independent of Russia for the last thirty years. Before that, for centuries, it was in and out, mostly in the Russian Empire. Whether it was the Soviets or the Russians or the czars, it was under the control of Russia for, for a lot of its history. And yet, and this is important to your question, it maintained its sense of who they are. It's a complicated history. It's, as you know, Dr. Sherlock, this is a people who have been under the control of Lithuanians at one point, under the control of the Poles at another point, under the control of the Austro-Hungarians at another point, certainly under the control of the Russians for for a lot of its history. But for Ukraine, they want to maintain their independence that they've known on a consistent basis since, since independence, since 1991, 1992. So for 30 years, over 30 years, they have had an independence from the Russians that they cherish. And that they're willing now to fight for. It. They didn't realize that they were going to have to fight for it. But in 2014, the Russians invaded part of Ukraine. They invaded Crimea, the southernmost part of Ukraine sticking into the Black Sea, the peninsula. Um, a couple of months later, the Russians invaded another part of Ukraine, in the southeast. We now know it as Donbas. It's two part parts of two oblasts, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, and as we all know uh, the russians after 8 years of war trying to use crimea and Donbass as a way to control ukraine which has been their goal all along the russians invaded ukraine again in february of 2022 from the ukraine standpoint and indeed from the world standpoint this was unprovoked this was unjustified there was no threat from Ukraine to Russia, there was no threat to Russia from from NATO. It's un, unprovoked, Tom. It was unprovoked, and so the Ukrainians, like I say, have been fighting the Russians for eight years since they first invaded in 2014. They have mounted a defense that has amazed the world. The Ukrainian people have united against this invasion. The government has been heroic in pulling the nation together. Uh, Ukrainian armed forces have amazed the world in their ability to fend off the Russian attack. They have pushed the Russians back away from the capital city, Kyiv. And you also asked the right question about the Ukrainians themselves. The Ukrainians as I say, as part of their history, have a pride in their language, Ukrainian language. A lot of Ukrainians speak Russian, but, but in particular since 2022, but even since 2014, the number of Ukrainians gets to the, your question about individuals, the number of individual Ukrainians that speak Ukrainian has gone way up. They are proud of their Ukrainianness, if you will. I have good friends in Kyiv. Worked with them, good friends around the country. I uh, have a good friend who's in the army. He's in the Ukrainian army right now. I hear from him regularly. People that I worked with at the embassy both times, both times I was there, stay, stay in touch. They tell me how they're doing. Some are still in Kyiv, some are in Lviv, in the western part of Ukraine, some are in Poland. They are, to a person, committed to victory. They are committed to winning this war against the Russians most people around the world didn't think they had a chance, but they do, and they are convinced, and I believe them. I think they do have the ability, the commitment, the, the resilience, indeed the strength to push back against the Russians. And from top to bottom, from the government that you asked about to the individuals that you asked about, they are committed to to their independence, to their sovereignty, to, to their freedom in some real sense, and, and to their own own defending their own land let me uh
1: please follow up on what you just said with the question about not only putin but many in the west that first expected ukraine to fold under the pressures of a russian invasion and this expectation was based in part in the belief that ukraine did not have a strong national identity and was too divided politically ukraine has displayed extraordinary resilience and resistance to the evasion which you just unpacked for us. Why were so many observers in the West and Russia wrong? Is there anything that you'd like to add to what you've already told us of this extraordinary history that Ukraine had, an identity that was being formed over time, and so on and so forth? Uh, Is there something else that made so many in the West and Russia wrong about the response?
2: The, The person who got it most wrong was Vladimir Putin. He has this notion um, in his head that he's developed over time. I think it is it has grown in his consciousness. It's, it's almost mystical, this fascination with, this obsession with Ukraine. It's unlike his obsession with other parts of the former Soviet empire, this former Russian empire. Ukraine has this this attraction for him and it's misconceived it's misunderstood he really misunderstands ukraine because he has convinced himself and there are probably a couple of people around him who have abetted this notion he's convinced himself that ukraine's not really a nation that it's not it's not a sovereign nation that it was a mistake that it's really it's ukraine's really just part of russia vladimir putin thinks And and being just part of Russia and being kind of what he calls kind of little Ukrainians, little Russians, Ukrainians are little Russians, that led him to think, and it probably seeped into, or maybe he was directed to his generals, that the Ukrainians wouldn't resist, that the Ukrainians either were too divided, as you say, or... Since they're really just Russians, they they might even welcome the Russian troops when they invaded Ukraine. Well, that was totally wrong, as we've seen. The Ukrainians have united against Putin and the Russians like never before. You're right to point out that Ukraine's a real democracy and it has factions and it has has arguments. I mentioned earlier about its uh, about its varied history being part of different empires at different times. But when President Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014, the first time, and then again when he invaded on the 24th of February of this year, he united Ukrainians like no Ukrainian leader has ever done. And he's united them against himself. Putin has united them against Russia, Russian military, and in particular Vladimir Putin and we see that in president zelensky we see that in president zelensky when he was elected of course he was elected with an overwhelming vote he was elected in 2019 with uh, 73% of a free and fair election against an incumbent president so it's a major is an incredible accomplishment a political accomplishment but as as happens in all democracies opposition mounts the, the burdens of leadership, of being in the government, responsible for everything that happens, takes its toll. And they're, again, a real democracy, a raucous democracy, representing different parts of the country, different views, different views, for example, about NATO. All of these factions had an effect on the politics, which is what you would expect in a democracy. When Putin invaded, the Ukrainians united around him, behind him, but around him as well. He reflects the ukrainian people he reflects the ukrainian people's resilience their pride in their own nation and their language and their history and their heroes he knows that he feels that he reflects that he's a vector for that so this is what has brought them together and the question is will will they stay together after after the war ends you know I, i point out that the ukrainians don't talk about after the war ends they talk about after victory but after they're victorious, because they they are convinced, they know that they're going to win if the United States and NATO keeps providing the support, they will win. So that's kind of where where they're coming from.
1: Thank you, Bill. I would be remiss being at West Point if I didn't ask a question about leadership. And to follow up with your discussion of President Zelensky, you have met President Zelensky on a number of occasions. You know, I'm wondering, what is your measure of the man? When we see him in the West on videos, on the news, and so on and so forth, it, he seems to be a strong, effective,
2: and charismatic leader. Is that a fair characterization? It's a very fair characterization, Tom, of President Zelensky right now. So he's got such an interesting background. I mentioned that he was elected with an overwhelming majority with a landslide in 2019. That was the first time he'd ever run for political office. He was a political novice. Let's be let's be clear. He was a successful businessman. He ran a, an entertainment company. did did well, not great, but he was very a very popular performer. And yet, when he when he got into office, when he was elected, he had to start really from scratch, both himself uh, and putting together a team. His team didn't have great background in government either. A couple did, not many. As I mentioned, Ukraine is, uh, is a real democracy. It has opposition parties that even though he won 73%, the opposition still there, built. His approval rating at, starting at 73 went down, 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 of course, with you make decisions and you bear the responsibility for those decisions. By the time the Russians invaded again in February of this year, Zelensky's approval rating was probably, I don't know, in the 30s. So uh, you're you're right. I've met him a bunch of times. When I got there to the embassy in Ukraine the second time um, in 2019, President Zelensky had just been elected. He had just been inaugurated. <clears throat> I had an opportunity to meet with him all that summer, through the fall, into the winter while I was there. And at that time, starting off on that landslide win, and then winning a very impressive victory in the parliamentary elections um, in that summer, he was able to put together a governing coalition, not even a coalition, actually, it turns out, a, a government without needing to form a coalition. He had, for the first time in Ukraine's history, he had enough votes in the Rada to form a government without having to go to a coalition, to go to other political parties. So he was able to pass some pretty significant legislation. It's always controversial when you do that. And so the by the time I saw him most recently, which was in January uh, of this year, I saw him in his office. I had a meeting with him for about a, about a little over an hour, talked to a bunch of other people as well. He was somewhat different, Tom, I will say, in that he was now a little more realistic, he was kind of idealistic when he was uh, first elected. He was optimistic that he could accomplish everything that he said in his campaign. By the time I saw him again, that, so I was in 2019, when I saw him again in 2022, with January 2022, this year, he had grown. He was realistic about the Russian troops that were surrounding his nation at that point. We remember the intelligence and the evidence that we had, the public evidence, that there were 120, 150,000 Russian troops around three borders of Ukraine. And he knew that. Um, and what he was then trying to do, this gets to your question about what kind of leader he is. Knowing the, the threat, he still wanted his nation to be determined, to not to panic, to prepare but not to not to panic uh, in the face of, of this Russian threat, and then the Russians invaded, and in the initial phase of that of this war, they made the Russians made some progress. Indeed, they got to the outskirts of Kiev, the capital of the, of the country, outskirts of the city where Zelensky was. He was in the presidential administration building compound, and there were many people, including. American government concerned that he might have to leave Kiev, that that if the Russians took over that city, they might get rid of him somehow. They were worried that the Russians would somehow get rid of President Zelensky and install a puppet so that they could control, this is what Putin has always wanted to do, control Ukraine. That was what they thought was going to happen. And at that time, President Zelensky famously said that what he needed, he says, I need ammunition. I don't need a ride because we were offering him a way out. and, And so that demonstrated leadership, not just to the world, but more importantly, most importantly, to the Ukrainian people. He demonstrated courage. He was not going to leave Kiev in spite of the real threat, the real physical threat, the real threat to him and his government. He was not leaving. And the Ukrainian people rallied around him. The Ukrainian people responded to that leadership. So it was courage. It was commitment. It was knowing his people. It was knowing the Ukrainian people, what they valued and, and what they were willing to fight for and they have fought. They have fought valiantly, and, and they might be winning. I think they will win. They are doing very well. And he saw that, and his leadership has been part of that. I mean, it's such a remarkable story. On the whole issue of
1: winning and the role that the United States has been playing, pushing toward the, that outcome, let's turn, if you don't mind, to the perspective of the United States. Can you address the importance of the current conflict in Ukraine, American values and interests, if you could articulate
2: that with your insight? This is a great question. It's an important question. It's important for Americans and other other people around the world to answer that question themselves. And you're right, the point about values and interests. On interests, let's start with that. The United States has a big stake in an order in the way nations deal with each other. There has been an order that evolved pretty quickly after World War II, an order that is, that, that is characterized by respect for sovereignty. Nations respect other nations' sovereignty. Nations respect other nations' borders. Nations respect other nations' values of, as they articulate them themselves. And in that respect, those set of principles, those set of norms are, they're in treaties, they're in understandings, they're in documents that, you know, they're part of the UN charter, the Helsinki principles, they were understood and they were adopted by and endorsed by uh, the Soviet Union and indeed Russia after that, as well as the rest of Europe. And this structure, this order, kept the peace, by and large, in Europe from 1945 for 69 years until 2014 when the Russians invaded Ukraine. When they invaded Ukraine, they challenged that order. That order kept the peace, by and large, again, small, we're not saying there were no conflicts, but but there were no major conflicts among great powers in Europe during that 69 years. And if we want to get back to some relatively peaceful order in Europe and in the world because this order expanded from Europe around the world if we want to get back to that then the russians have to get out of ukraine the russians have to respect the sovereignty of their neighbor if the russians are allowed to dominate ukraine if they are allowed to change borders by force which is what they've what they're trying to do now that's totally incompatible, that that totally violates this order that we're trying to reestablish in order to keep the peace and to uh, assure prosperity and do things that matter to us. So that's kind of the interests. You rightly also asked about values. And we talked earlier about how the Ukrainians are fighting for their land, their communities, their homes, and they're also fighting for their independence, They're fighting for their democratic way of operating, of governing. Those are their values. Those are European values. They want to be part of Europe. So the Ukrainians now are on the front line of that fight. The Russians have invaded Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are holding off the Russians by themselves, but they're holding off the Russians on behalf of... Europeans, on behalf of the West, including the United States. This is a broader conflict between an autocratic Russia and a democratic Ukraine, a democratic Europe, a democratic United States, a democratic West. And and there's a moral value there. Cadets at West Point, the military at West Point will go to the front lines. Our soldiers, our sailors, our Marines, our airmen, they're on the front lines. Of the United of the American conflicts, and by and large, the United States citizens, the people of the United States, we support those troops, we support that military that are on the front line for us. And by the same token, I think we have a moral obligation to support the Ukrainians. They are on the front line for us as well. So, both in interests and in values, we have a strong interest in Ukraine defeating the Russians as they try to invade.
1: You know, I think if there's any silver lining to the tragedy of Ukraine today is that this conflict has so crystallized the importance of western values and the importance of the difference that still remains in the 21st century among so many different kinds of countries, democracies versus autocracies. But let me uh, return to what you said about America on the front lines. Can you speak a little bit about what the current conflict in Ukraine means for the American military? uh, How do you think its mission and composition might change as a result of that conflict
2: over the next, I guess, couple of years? So the United States military, indeed, mainly our army, of particular interest to cadets, has been training Ukrainian soldiers in Ukraine for for years. Intensively, since 2014, since the Russians first invaded, there is, in the western part of Ukraine, near the western city of of Lviv, a a smaller town called Yavoriv, and around Yavoriv is a military base, a Ukrainian military base, that is staffed by NATO nations, and kind of grounded by the United States military, the United States Army. We are providing training there for Ukrainian military, along with Lithuanians, Brits, Canadians, other NATO members have troops there, but the United States is the lead agency, the lead army, the lead force in that training. So we've been supporting the Ukrainians there. Turns out when I was I, uh, I was in Ukraine twice, in my second tour, I visited Yavoriv, and one of my old units, uh, the 101st Airborne, had a had a component there, had a had a part of the of the brigade, second brigade, that was there at training. So I had a great time talking to some of the uh, Screaming Eagles uh, there about times have changed since since <laughs> since I was there, but nonetheless uh, we had the same shoulder patch, and so, but but so the U.S. military and the Army in particular has been training Ukrainians. But this has also demonstrated, Tom, the importance of NATO, um, the the importance of a forward presence in NATO. We've already seen the United States send units from CONUS, from the United States, uh, to Europe, and not just to Europe, but to Eastern Europe, to the eastern flank nations in NATO. Here again, another of my units, my first unit was the 82nd Airborne, and they're now in Warsaw. They're now in Poland. And that's a result of the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. So there's a redeployment towards the eastern part of NATO, number one. Number two, NATO is taking a real important role in in defending a non-NATO nation. I mean, let's be clear. Ukraine is not yet a a member of NATO. Maybe it will be in the future. It's not yet. It's not now. It would like to be. Let's, we can come back to that. But it would like to be a, a member of NATO, but uh, the Europeans have decided not the case. Nonetheless, NATO is providing incredible support. NATO nations, led by the United States, but other NATO nations as well, are providing weapons, training, intelligence. Turns out intelligence is really important, as are, as all of us in the military, all well, of you in the military, know that's an important component of fighting a war. And that intelligence is having a, a, a great effect. NATO is providing that. NATO is demonstrating its value. And if if there were concerns earlier about the relevance of NATO, and you know we had a president who didn't think very much of NATO, we had another president of France who thought that uh, NATO had lost its way. Well, NATO has found its way. NATO has provided, has demonstrated uh, its value uh, and its effectiveness, and. NATO is expanding right now, not, not just because of Ukraine. Ukraine may join NATO at some point. I'd like to see it, but that's that's down the line. But more immediately, Finland is very interested, and the Swedes are very interested in following fin- the Finns into NATO. So NATO is going to come out of this, this conflict larger by two. It's going to come out of this conflict stronger, uh, more confident, and the U.S. military is going to play a major role in that. We are seeing the, the value of alliances, I mean, this particular alliance, but there's a broader alliance as well that has to do with the economic sanctions that we're putting on Russia. But the military alliance, getting, just keeping with your question, Tom, about the, the importance of this conflict, lessons of this conflict for the U.S. military, in particular the U.S. Army, but the U.S. Alliances never been more important. And the different components, the different elements of this alliance that are pulling together to support Ukraine and to defend against the Russians is a major component. So that's a big lesson and that has big implications for the U.S. Army and the U.S. military more broadly.
1: Ukraine emphasizes the importance of these transnational institutions that the United States played such an important role in helping set up in the case of NATO supporting in the case of the European Union. And so, so a remarkable contribution of the United States to the stability of Europe for decades and now hopefully for the uh, survival of Ukraine and its rebuilding. So my question is, in terms of these, this institutional matrix that is on the border of Ukraine, the EU and NATO, could you speak for a moment to the major obstacles that Ukraine faces in entry into either or both of these very important transnational institutions, the NATO
2: alliance, but also the European Union? Really important question and really important answers for Ukraine. Just start with the European Union. There is a small, I understand, I don't know this very well, but I understand that there is a small security component of the treaty that binds, that founds the European Union. However, it's mainly economics that is the purpose for the European Union. And the Ukrainians know this. The Ukrainians are very eager to join the European Union. They want to meet the same economics level standards. They want to meet the same requirements that other European and other EU member states aspire to and achieve. They're ready to do that. Indeed, the revolution of dignity that sparked the 2014 invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia was the spark um, that uh, ignited the revolution of dignity in 2014 was uh, admission the Ukrainians wanted to apply to and were ready to sign an agreement to start the process of, of applying to the European Union. That's where that started. And when the kind of Russia leaning president of Ukraine, decided under pressure from President Putin not to approach the European Union, not to sign that association agreement, the Ukrainians went to the streets. They protested that. They ran him out. They w- they really wanted to join the European Union. This is a, really important. And they've re- reiterated that, that desire recently. And despite some signals, some con- contradictory signals coming from the Europeans, by and large, the Europeans are open to, indeed, even encouraging of uh, Ukraine applying to the European Union. They already have a free trade agreement. They already have visa-free travel with the Europeans. The Ukrainians already have several steps in that direction, but they want to be members. And I think that will come. I think that will come. I, I, I don't know if it'll be six months, uh, which would be very fast, or if it would be a couple of years, which would be probably normal but uh, i think the your, the ukrainians will be members of the eu at some point relatively soon nato ukrainians would like to be in nato ukrainians look around their neighborhood if you will and they see their immediate neighbors like poland that they have a lot in common with as uh, uh, being very secure very confident in their nation security because they're a member of a of a very successful competent defensive alliance, military alliance, that keeps them secure. And the Ukrainians see the Poles with that, and and they're facing this invasion. And the Ukrainians say, what's the difference? Why? Or they look at the Baltic states. They look at Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, which, like Ukraine, used to be part of the Soviet Union. And so the Ukrainians say, why, you know, they're in, they used to be part of the Soviet Union. We used to be part of the Soviet Union. They wanted to get in NATO. Why can't we join? So the Ukrainians have a long-term interest, desire. It's in their constitution. Both the uh, membership in the European Union and the membership in NATO are now in their constitution, the Ukrainian constitution, as goals, as the uh, as direction for their foreign policy. So they would like to be there. The problem, of course, has been, That in order to be accepted into NATO, all nations, all existing member states uh, in NATO have to agree. And several European, Central European nations have not agreed. This latest fight, this latest battle, this latest conflict may... When it ends, the Ukrainians will say when they're victorious, but there may be a reassessment of this. The Ukrainians will have demonstrated that they can stand up to the Russians. and Indeed, that's now the purpose of NATO again, standing up to the Russians, defending Europe from the Russians. And the Ukrainians will have demonstrated an ability to do exactly that. So there may be a reevaluation of that, but that'll take a longer time. I think that will be, that's a process that will proceed over time. And it, it may be that over time, attitudes change, even in, in Europe. And it may, be, it may be that the Europeans will come to see, you know, it'd be actually to our benefit. Uh, we will be more secure if Ukraine's in. The Poles would certainly like it, because if Ukraine's in, that means the Russians are not on their border. If Ukraine's not in, the Poles are worried that the Russians are on their border. So all to say, that is harder. The NATO accession is harder, but it, uh, it, it might come.
1: Again, such a remarkable series of events and also an uncertain outcome. What might Americans do to support Ukraine as it fights on so many different fronts, military, economic, diplomatic? Do you have any words of advice for Americans
2: who would like to help out individually, collectively? Thank you, Tom. Yes, Ukraine can win this fight against the Russians. Again, they didn't start this fight, but they can win it. If the United States and European nations, NATO, but European Union, and even broader, including alliances that include the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Australians, if that support that the Ukrainians are benefiting from right now, taking advantage of, and and I believe holding off the Russians and may even be able to turn the tide and push them back out, that support is key to their success. It is key to their success. That support will be sustainable. Americans at all levels know what's going on and support what's going on. If we Americans see that there are values here that we want to defend, that the Ukrainians are helping defend for us, if we can see that the Ukrainians are on the front line and we have an obligation to support them, it's not easy, it's not inexpensive. It's not guaranteed that this support will be there over time. We're seeing that this support is very strong. The bipartisan support for Ukraine has always been there. Uh, Ukraine somehow has been able to maintain this, uh, this support from Republicans and Democrats, Republican administrations and Democratic administrations over time. And that's why they are as far as they uh, are now, that together with their own accomplishments. But that Support needs to continue. It's not cheap, as President Biden has pointed out. Legislation that provides all of the support, both in military side and economic side, financial side, the sanctions, these are all difficult measures, difficult steps. And the United States, led by its people, the American citizens, so people listening to us right now need to support and let people know that they support this this, uh, Ukrainian effort. So that's the first thing. So stay aware, express that support, demonstrate that support, talk to your local leaders and your national leaders. That's important for them to hear that it's important to us, to Americans. There are things that people are doing right now themselves. There are incredible range of organizations that are providing things from medicines to food, to military equipment. There are organizations that are putting together personal protective gear, communications equipment, and it's easy to find online. The humanitarian support, supporting the East Europeans that are taking in millions, literally millions of Ukrainians that are being pushed out of their country temporarily into Poland, into Slovakia. And so the support for those nations as they accept refugees coming in from Ukraine. There are a lot of ways to do that. I've, I've talked to some people who've actually gone there. They've volunteered and gone to East Europe, gone to, to Poland to help the Poles, in turn, help the Ukrainians. But you don't even have to go there. You can support it politically, support it economic, financially. There are ways to, to, that we can all help out. And it needs to be sustained because this is not going to be over soon. I hope that our support, that our military support, will allow the Ukrainians to win this war uh, against Russia. And it could happen in a couple of months, but it might be years. It might be a long time. And our support needs to be there over time.
1: i just close by saying and asking a a final question. You know, I remember in my own work doing interviews in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia in the post-Cold War period and how so many people told me that their resilience, anti-Soviet at that time, resilience was largely derived from knowing that the West never recognized their incorporation into the Soviet Union. And uh, perhaps you can say a couple of words about how Ukrainians
2: are reacting to the support of the West in the current conflict. The Ukrainians will remember. The Ukrainians will remember the support that they are now getting from the United States. They have said that, they've told me that. They are so appreciative of the leaders of the United States, but also of other European nations that have shown up in Kyiv. Right now, when there is some threat of, there's some danger to to people visiting Kyiv, but they will remember who came. Ukrainians will remember who supported them. And they know that the United States is leading that support. They know that the United States is leading the military alliance. They know that the United States is the force behind the sanctions on Russia that are having a real effect. The Ukrainians will know. You mentioned the Latvians and Estonians and Lithuanians. There's a good parallel there that you know well, Tom. That is, the Soviet Union annexed um, those three Baltic countries at the beginning of World War II, and the United States never recognized that annexation. There was a Wells declaration coming out of uh, Sumner Wells, the, I think the Deputy Secretary of State, and that declaration said, we will never recognize the Soviet annexation of the latvia Estonian, Lithuania." Secretary Pompeo... To his credit, issued a similar declaration in the summer of 2018, which said the United States will never recognize the Russian annexation of Crimea. And, and, and we haven't, and we won't. And the Ukrainians know that. Just like, as you say, the Baltic states, they remember that we never recognize. The Ukrainians have the same understanding, that they will at some point regain Crimea regain Donbass, they will prevail, and they'll remember who supported them.
1: Sir, on that very positive note, uh, I thank you for a very rich uh, conversation.
2: Tom, thank you. It's It's been great. It's a great opportunity to talk to all the people there at West Point. Thank you again. Thank you.
0: This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, and join us each week for a new episode.